Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Scott Cascone. It could be said that Dr. Cascone's career in education began the day a bus dropped him off on the side of the road in a torrential downpour near the remote village of Hone Creek, Costa Rica. He would start his teaching career as a volunteer English teacher with a nonprofit organization, World Teach. Upon returning to the United States, Dr. Cascone put his language skills to work, first as a Spanish and ESL teacher before advancing into school administration. Dr. Cascone has served in department, building, and central office positions, accruing extensive practical knowledge and experience in the foundational domains of public education, curriculum, personnel, finance, policy, and operations. Regardless of position, Scott has continually applied his linguistic knowledge to work with assisting culturally and linguistically diverse families and students. In fact, he cites service to others as the keystone to his professional motivation and approach. Also of particular interest to him is strategic planning around complex second-order organizational changes while maintaining high staff morale and sound organization health. Welcome, Dr. Scott Cascone. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well. Glad to be here today. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? 100% ready to go. Okay, great. Now, Scott, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. Well, I started my career in education a little over 25 years ago uh, when I went abroad to Costa Rica as a volunteer English teacher. And when I went abroad, I didn't go with the intention of remaining in the educational profession. Spent a little over a year there, came back, and it was kind of a financial imperative to find some gainful employment. So I secured a job teaching high school Spanish. And after doing it for some time, I realized that I loved it and that uh, education was where I wanted to focus my professional energies. So uh, shortly after that, I went back and I did my master's degree in teaching, got into the public school system. And, you know, I think it was in those early years that I felt like I was having a good degree of success in the classroom. I felt that what I was doing and kind of what I had arrived at from a pedagogical approach and working with young folks, that it was something I felt was worthy of transmitting to others. And I think that it was that kind of promise of being able to have a larger, kind of more expansive impact on more people that ultimately led me to pursue a path in leadership. And so for the last 15 years, I've been serving in a variety of different roles. I've done a whole bunch of different things in public ed from, you know, supervising world language and ESL programs, a building administration um, as an assistant principal and a high school principal. And then I've also served in central office roles as a director of personnel. And most recently, I'm um, in a large suburban school district in New Jersey as a director of academics 
which is essentially curriculum and instruction. And that brings me to today. That's quite a journey. You said several times serving. Is that mm. the type of leader that you connect with? Absolutely. I mean, I think that I kind of bristle when I hear, you know, the word business used to describe the educational profession. And even as I've moved, you know, up into the ranks of administration, I feel as if I've never really lost my teacher roots. And, you know, it's interesting. I'll be invited sometimes into our elementary schools. In particular, the elementary schools, the teachers make a big deal with the kids about, you know, Dr. Cascone is here. He's a very important person. And so, you know, what I'll say to the kids, I say, well, I appreciate, you know, your teacher's good words and kind words. I said, but you are really the most important people in the school district, followed a close mm -hmm. second by your teachers. And, you know, I'm here really to serve you and to support you. A similar story was a teacher would say to me when I first came to the district, well, I look forward to working for you. And I said, I appreciate that, but I work for you. Oh, the, I love that. Yeah. And I think the further we move up the organizational structure, I think it actually becomes more about service by virtue of the fact that, you know, we're impacting and serving more people. And so that becomes kind of exponential as you move up. So I've always tried to bring that spirit of service to what I do as a leader. How did that teacher respond when you said that? I mean, I think there's kind of a slightly embarrassed appreciation, you know, oftentimes kind of surprised by that sentiment. But I think ultimately there's an appreciation of it. And, you know, I hear that in feedback that, you know, teachers might give to me, you know, unsolicited and just, you know, in passing when I see them of just how they perceive me to be, you know, approachable and down to earth and in it for the right reasons. And so I really pride myself on getting that kind of feedback. And it's really the kind of feedback I strive to receive. And it's a deep understanding about leadership. If someone were to say that to me, it would really hit home and say a lot about who you are as a person. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Scott, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? The quote that I tend to quote a lot over the course of the last couple of years actually comes from former Secretary of State and General Colin Powell. It's kind of more of like multiple sentences. He writes, I encouraged all my subordinate commanders and staff to feel free to argue with me. My guidance was simple. Disagree with me. Do it with feeling. Try to convince me you are right and I'm about to go down the wrong path. You owe that to me. That's why you are here. Don't be intimidated when I argue back. A moment will come when I have heard enough and I make a decision. At that very instant, I expect all of you to execute my decision as if it were your idea. Don't damn the decisions with faint praise. Don't mumble under your breath. We now all move out together to get the job done. And don't argue with me anymore unless you have new information or I realize I goofed and come back to you. Loyalty is disagreeing strongly and loyalty is executing faithfully. The decision is not about you or your ego. It's about gathering all the information, analyzing it, and trying to get the right answer. I still love you, so get mad and get over it. It speaks to a characteristic of a team of the, for lack of a better description, kind of superior subordinate relationship, which I have come to really believe is so important, which is an environment in which folks who you manage and lead feel very comfortable being honest and using candor behind closed doors in, in the boardroom or the conference room or the meeting room. I think it's so critical. And I have seen in many cases environments where that's not the case and it becomes something that can really become damaging to an organization and certainly to kind of the managerial structure of an organization. And that quote speaks to a relationship. It's not just, this is how you should respond to me, but it comes from having a deep relationship or a connection already. 
Absolutely. That's the delicate balance. You know, we walk in the kind of the managerial paradigm and it exists between teacher and students. It exists between parents and children and it exists between superiors and subordinates is, you know, close enough where that comfort level exists, Mm -hmm. but where there's also a level of respect and where there's a sense that there's accountability there when it's needed. Beautifully said. Thank you. Now, Scott, can you tell us about a leader who inspires you? This is the question, Lily, that I had the most difficulty coming up with an answer. And I will ultimately get to a direct answer to it. But prior to that, I would just like to say that, you know, I derive a lot of my inspiration, not necessarily from people who are leading in what you would consider traditional leadership roles, but I oftentimes derive my inspiration from sometimes the people who I'm leading. You know, when I was a high school principal, you know, and I wrote about this one time that I derived a lot of inspiration from my students and the really kind of the tough road that they walked as high school students from the standpoint of just the workload and the pressure. And sometimes folks would say to me, well, geez, you know, you always seems like, you know, you're up late and you're working and you're working from home and so on and so forth. They go, well, that's what my students are doing. You know, my students are not going home and kicking back. You know, they get home at nine o'clock from athletic contests or rehearsals and they're getting cracking the books for two or three hours. So that being said, and just kind of daily stories, whether it's a person with specialized needs that's rising above challenges and difficulties to excel, I really find a lot of daily inspiration from those kinds of stories. But really specifically as it relates to leaders, I mean, I really look to the American Civil Rights Movement and some of the leaders, you know, the more notable leaders of that movement, whether it were Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, you know, and then, you know, some of the lesser known leaders who were really kind of putting ultimately their lives on the line at a time when they saw that change was necessary. I think anytime I see that in terms of leaders, activists, revolutionaries, perhaps, without maybe the violent aspect of revolution, but people who are willing to sacrifice everything for something they believe in is really where I derive inspiration. You're inspired by people who walk through the struggle with courage. That's a good way of putting it, yes. Love it. So, Scott, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I received, and it's going to seem sort of cliche and simple in statement is, you know, to be a man of your word, to be a person of your word. And the older I get, you know, this idea of of integrity, you know, and following through, I think is something as a leader that is so critical. And when people see you as a person who's going to do what you say you're going to do, it really builds credibility and legitimacy as a leader and as a person. And I think that if you're going to abide by any rule, it's a good one. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I think that was probably the best advice I ever received, one I've tried to live by. And it's interesting. You call it a basic rule and it seems simple, but it's quite possibly one of the most difficult things to do. It is. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis when he said, you know, until you actually apply yourself to being, quote unquote, good, you don't realize how difficult it is to do on a consistent basis. But, you know, I think that that's what standards are all about, right? It's a fidelity to meeting a standard and we won't always meet it. But in having a fidelity to achieve that, we'll achieve greater things than we would have if we lowered our standards or if we didn't have fidelity to high standards. Great. Thank you. Now, Scott, what does it mean to you? to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? Well, I think, you know, some of what I spoke to earlier in terms of the the leadership quote, I think is tangent to this idea of a team 
obviously a team has a person that is serving in kind of that leadership role, right? You know, kind of an athletic team, it's the coach, right? And having been, you know, kind of a varsity level athletic coach earlier in my career and over the course of the last 10 years, you know, a coach for my daughters, I still see a lot of great parallels that exist in that realm of kind of the relationship between players and coach and ultimately, you know, the dynamic that exists within a team. I think as the coach is creating a culture and validating this value that it's a symbiotic environment, you know, where we all are really depending upon each other and that we all really bring strengths and assets and resources to the table and creating an environment where people really feel that and they believe it and it's the truth. You know, by doing that, we empower people and I believe motivate and inspire them to bring forth their best effort having an environment where there is an authentic two-way process for feedback. Mm -hmm. And so keeping with that analogy where, you know, your players aren't afraid to speak to you, you know, like, Hey, they're out on the field and you're giving directives and they're seeing something or experiencing something that you might not necessarily see from the sidelines where they don't feel like we can't tell coach that because coach thinks he knows everything. Right. So mm -hmm. that environment where there's a two-way process of feedback, I think it's also, you know, giving the sense to your players that when we fail, we fail together. When we succeed, we succeed together. Mm -hmm. I refer to it as kind of shared ownership for the mission. It's really important so that, you know, even when maybe one of your members of the team has a misstep, you come to them and say, hey, listen, I'm owning this with you because at the end of the day, I'm overseeing the whole process. So maybe there was something I didn't do. Maybe there was something I didn't pick up on that could have prevented that from happening. I think that really builds a level of trust in a mm -hmm. team when it's not a gotcha when somebody fails. We have a, mm -hmm. a frank open conversation about what happened and what we can do to improve. Mm -hmm. I think also we're building a culture on the team where constructive feedback is a common occurrence as well as positive recognition when things are going well, right? It's that positive recognition that when there is a tough kind of critical conversation that happens that people see it in the context of the larger relationship and then I think finally, as ultimately the coach or the leader of the team is really that your players, your teammates have a trust and a confidence in your knowledge of mm -hmm. the initiative and what you're leading. You mentioned that you were a coach. Right. Has that experience helped you to become a better leader? I think so, because even as a coach, you know, when you kind of get your players and I've been a recreational soccer coach for the last 10 years, I doing a little bit of travel, but mostly recreational soccer. You know, you have a real range of abilities, range of different kind of motivations and reasons for why kids are coming out. And like in any organization, you have a range of abilities, right? I mean, not everybody is necessarily a superstar, but if we're all pulling together and everyone's kind of leveraging the strengths they have, we can develop a great kind of esprit de corps amongst ourselves and we can achieve great things together. And recognizing even as a coach that every player, regardless of what their level is, can contribute something. I've been known to say to the players, I said, I'm so proud of you. Every player contributed something to this victory. And it may have literally been one kick at a really important time, but it mattered, right? And so I think that that's how it's kind of translated into management on a professional level. You know, I've had people say, and I really believe this, that you can't be a great leader if you're not coaching well, because part of coaching and what coaching is, is really pulling out of them the greatness in them. So, exactly right. All right. So, Scott, can you tell us about a challenge that mm. you've experienced and how it's shaped your life? 
I'll have to go back to my time in Costa Rica. So, you know, I embarked on this adventure to go down to Central America. And I recall the day that it kind of hit me, what I was in for. The first month we were in country, you know, we were in a mountain town, not too far outside of San Jose. And we were with all the other volunteers. It was relatively comfortable. We kind of had a support network around us. And I remember the day that the bus dropped me off on my first day. And I was on the bus with a couple other volunteers who were in the vicinity, but just a little further south. And so can still see in my mind this bus pulling away in their faces. <laughs> and the bus was gone. And then there was just banana fields. And then the heavens opened up with a torrential tropical <laughs> downpour. And here I am traipsing down this dirt road, wheeling a suitcase, I oh might shamefully admit, with a pair of wingtips on or something. And, um, and <laughs> do, I, you, do you have a picture of that? I wish I did, in my mind. So I ended up getting picked up by some Italians. They threw my suitcase on the top of their Land Rover. And ultimately, I found my way to the house. I lived in a very rural, remote part of the country. You know, no indoor plumbing, no heating, air conditioning, anything of that nature. And so the whole experience was very fortifying, very formative, and very eye-opening. You know, I had grown up in a relatively privileged upbringing. I mean, we weren't rich, but certainly, you know, by the standards of probably the vast majority of the world, it was a comfortable upbringing. And so living in Costa Rica, I think afforded me a certain perspective that I've carried with me throughout my whole life. And I recommend to anyone mm -hmm. and everyone you know, that they have an experience like that. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a Central American country or even out of the country. I mean, there's opportunities right here in our own country to mm -hmm. really kind of shock your perspective and shift it. Of course, the experience of really solidifying my bilingualism down there has been a part of my career. I've always used it. It's always been a part of what I've done professionally. And I've done a lot of work in working with, you know, Spanish-speaking parents and families and students you know, my doctoral dissertation was in that area. And so, you know, it continues to this day, even 25 years later, to kind of propel myself professionally and drive me professionally. It was a great challenge on a lot of levels, but it also taught me that if we're committed to it, you can adapt. And it can be scary at first, but you'll survive. Exactly. And, you know, just to kind of touch back to that idea of service, I think that that was a service commitment, you know, a nonprofit organization was a volunteer commitment. And I think that the gratification that I got from that experience has also stayed with me. And I think that's why, to this day, I still kind of speak to that idea of service and how it's still a big part of who I am professionally. And how long were you there for? The teaching commitment was 10 months, and then I stayed on afterwards. I interviewed to serve on the orientation team for the next group of volunteers to come in, which was really great because I was probably the most proficient Spanish speaker of the orientation staff. And so I had a great opportunity in advance of them coming down to actually visit the towns where the volunteers would be placed and meet with the school officials and meet with the prospective host families just to kind of confirm that the arrangements were there. And so it was wonderful. I got to travel throughout the country to a number of different places I hadn't been before. And so I stayed on for another couple of months to serve as a trainer, you know, then did some traveling up through Central America with a friend of mine. So all told, I was probably there about a year and a half. Bonus. Total bonus. All right. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Originally, I was going to speak to my doctoral work, but I've had an experience recently here in Oldbridge, which if you're a fan of strategic planning, you're going to be really excited by this. And I sort of am. I get excited by it. It's an initiative that we've planned here in Oldbridge. It's a team I've called the Technology Delta Team. 
So the genesis for this team was two summers ago, I've gone into a new lease for computers and we had 6,000 new devices come. And, you know, I looked at the technology director and I said, you know, we have these devices coming. What are we planning to do with these? Now, we had been having conversations about this idea of kind of shifting the instructional paradigm, 21st century teaching and learning, digital teaching and learning. And it had been kind of haphazard. We didn't really have a cogent strategy. And having seen enough fly-by-night one-to-one initiatives and just kind of haphazard technology implementations, I said, you know, that's not going to be us this time. There's too much at stake here, and we need to get this right. And so I put together a small team initially, and then it ebbed and flowed depending upon what we were doing. And we got together, and we really approached this very thoughtfully, very deliberately, very strategically in saying, you know, when we think about digital teaching and learning, and we think about the digital teacher, what is the digital teacher doing? What are the key teaching behaviors doing? We kind of tease them out into these buckets and then kind of very thoughtfully went to, okay, so now what applications would they need in order to be able to kind of perform those behaviors and what kinds of professional development supports are we going to put in place? We laid out a very clear three-year timeline with kind of exactly what we were planning to accomplish in each year. And you know, now in year two, it's tremendously exciting and gratifying to see you know, this strategic plan coming to fruition and seeing this instructional culture start to shift. And so what it kind of reinforced in my mind is that I think many of the challenges that we've encountered in public education is that we're not nearly forethoughtful, strategic, Mm -hmm. and deliberate enough in the way we approach organizational change or trying to resolve kind of big, complex challenges. And so for me, it's exciting because it kind of represents now a boilerplate which now I really feel confident using, you know, in approaching really any kind of organizational change management or complex issue that's being solved. And it can be compressed depending upon the timeline, not ideally. And to me, that's very exciting because, you know, for somebody that's going to most likely remain in this profession for some time to come and who's bound to continue to encounter very difficult challenges and organizational change, it's exciting. It's something that we're proud of. It's something that, you know, we've publicized and kind of got out there in various circles, published articles on it, you know, on Twitter and things of that nature. And we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback from people validating this approach that we've taken. So strategic planning, you've said a lot, you've given us a lot, you've shared so much, but when you've talked about this, your passion really came through. I know, it. I, know. <laughs> I, I, could, I could hear it in my own voice. You could, like, huh? <laughs> Which brings me to your leadership statement. And I underlined this. At the end, it says you have a particular interest in strategic planning around complex second order organizational Mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. What does that mean? So if you look at the Partnership for 21st Century Education, we have to remind ourselves that we're now 20 years into the 21st century, Mm -hmm. and we're still talking about, you know, what 21st century learning looks like and the extent that were there. So the reason I mentioned that, Lily, is because I think that the profession is really in need of various types of second order change, whether we're talking about leadership models being more distributive, or we're talking about the classroom being more student-centered and inquiry-driven, you know, or we're talking about curriculum being more interdisciplinary and less siloed. I mean, these are all second order changes in that 
we're talking about breaking down a structure that's existed for a century. But I think that there's a lot of complexity there. And I think the reason I get excited by it is because we're at a time where we can really be ushering in this significant dramatic change to how we operate. Yes. Um, but, you know, we have to be very thoughtful and yes. deliberate and yes, strategic in the way that we approach it. So yeah, I'm excited because I'm here, I'm in the fight and it's doable. And the, the rewards, the upside is, is really exciting. I love how you say we need to usher this in and it does require planning and readjusting to make sure that our vision, the vision of those that we lead is secure. I like how you keyed in on the word usher and I used it now that you repeated it. You know, I had this image of a wedding, right? And so very kind of gracefully and slowly, arm in arm, we seat folks, but we tend to not usher people into change. We tend to push That's them right. That's with right. two hands behind them. Yes. Why does not usually go pretty well? But you know what? I mean, part of the reason is because we're not taught to do that. Right. That's why we're having these conversations. And so mm. I appreciate that. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Master Leadership at Schools podcast program will help prepare your students for any future they encounter. Teachers and students learn effective leadership and podcasting skills to create a platform that's an incubator for leadership, innovation, collaboration, and creativity. See this in action at masterleadership.org forward slash MLS and find out how to bring this to your organization. That's masterleadership.org forward slash MLS. So Scott, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? You know, I look at that from two different sides. I mean, I think that, you know, there's the professional side of that, mm -hmm. where this idea of kind of continuing education and that we should not and we can't cease to build our professional knowledge or professional expertise. I think particularly in such a dynamic environment, a dynamic world, it's imperative upon leaders to remain current. And it's much easier to do nowadays than it's ever been. I mean, information and perspective and resources are ubiquitous. Your podcast being one of infinite number, no less valuable, of course, infinite number of opportunities there are for us to kind of tap in and learn. So I think that there's that piece. But I think there's also another piece, which is stepping outside of your immediate expertise and professional learning and pursuing other learning interests. And so I think it's very eye-opening as kind of like a grown adult to take on learning something very new. To give you an example, my wife is Armenian. I'm Italian. We decided to raise our children in the Armenian Apostolic Church. I was raised Roman Catholic. I ended up converting to the Armenian Orthodox. And then somewhere along the way, I got kind of called to want to actually be ordained and serve as an altar server and a deacon. And this required me to learn Armenian. So particularly how to read Armenian and how to chant and sing in Armenian. I've always generally had kind of an affinity for languages, but learning a language as an adult was a much different task. And so I think what it did was it, it really kind of reestablished this kind of empathy and understanding of kind of what learners go through. Because as we get older, we tend to kind of stick to the known, right? And, and, and right. over time, we gradually develop a confidence and a comfort level. And so it's hard for us to kind of project back to those times when we were in learning environments where maybe we didn't feel that way. It's been decades maybe since we felt that way. And so as an educator, to be in that situation where all of a sudden you feel that uncertainty, you feel that discomfort, you know, I think that that's really important and helpful perspective 
being an educational leader. And I think it keeps your perspective fresh. And you have a pulse on how students that are having difficulty learning feel. So you have that empathy. But I love how you said that we need to step outside our comfort zone, outside of our discipline, because one of the things that I had decided to do when I first started this podcast was really reach out to ed leaders, but I opened it up to all kinds of leaders because we can learn so Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. from other disciplines, whether it's business, social entrepreneurs. There's so many people we've had on where we glean leadership characteristics and virtues and things that we can put in place that we can use in our ed organizations. 100%. agree. So Scott, you've been in education for a while. If there was something you could change, what would that be? A lot. (laughs) You know, it runs from kind of micro level things to very systems level things. And But one thing that jumped out at me when I thought about this question is really kind of the departmentalization of secondary education. Basically, when we begin to departmentalize in middle school, and it seems, you know, maybe a little bit specific, but, you know, I've been known to say that if you want to find the closest thing to 21st century education, go to the elementary schools because the elementary schools have the luxury of being in a structure where you have a teacher that's a generalist and is teaching typically all of those subjects. And so she or he has the ability to build those connections and to draw Mm -hmm. those connections, which John Dewey spoke and wrote about that is that we don't live in a compartmentalized, departmentalized world, and neither should the educational experience be yet starting in sixth grade in high school, we compartmentalize into English and language arts and science, social studies, et cetera. I think that it's a real impediment to you know having secondary learning environments that are really 21st century. For generations, we've heard the call for interdisciplinary education and we all kind of get it and we say, yes, like that makes a lot of sense. But the departmentalization of secondary education makes that much more difficult to do. When we have opportunities in secondary education, and they typically occur within elective type courses where we can break down those barriers, what happens? Kids are supercharged up about it. You know, and those happen a lot of times in our related arts, our applied engineering courses, our technology courses, where they're not hamstrung by the standards of a specific content area. Now, have teachers gotten better, you know, within their subject area of looking for those interdisciplinary connections? Sure. But at the end of the day, the state standards are siloed. The state standards are by subject area. They're not interdisciplinary in nature. It creates a real challenge. And I think it speaks on sort of a conceptual level to kind of what I refer to as education in a box, the box of the school, the box of the classroom, and the box of the content area. And I think that that boxing in is really contrary to what we're trying to do. And so if I could change anything, I would really look to completely reinvent in particular. I think we get it basically right on the elementary level. I think if we're doing it well, we're doing it pretty well there. I think on the secondary level, particularly on the high school level, we really need to completely reinvent many things, not the least of which the high school environment. You know, it doesn't look like college, doesn't feel like college, and certainly doesn't look or feel like the workforce. And maybe that's the North Star, is when we look at college and we look at the modern workplace, let's make our high school look and feel more like those environments. We have listeners from all different spaces in leadership, from emerging leaders to 
solid leaders or leaders who have been around for a while. So when we talk about this, and there's people that say, yes, let's do it. How can we start to make those changes? Because we can talk about change, you know, and we've talked about change for a long time. And these are really solid, great ideas that make sense, but we're still stuck here. Yeah. What are some things that we can start to do to at least get unstuck? Let's assume that many aspects of the status quo don't change. So in other words, the very restrictive kind of certification requirements that are put Mm -hmm. forth by don't change and the finances don't change, whereby we're able to really kind of reinvent our spaces across the board. I wrote a piece recently on STEAM and the purpose of the article was really clarify STEAM and kind of putting STEAM on a continuum of on one end, it's a learning experience that involves all the subject areas and disciplines that are in that acronym. Okay. And you might find that say in like applied engineering course, but on the other end is what I refer to as STEAM Gestalt. So basically it's taking these premises of STEAM, which is in essence is creating interdisciplinary curriculum. And it doesn't necessarily mean that in a language arts class, you're going to be using math. What it means is, is that when we design curriculum, that that is a non-negotiable. This curriculum is building in meaningful interdisciplinary connections. It's building in meaningful opportunities for student inquiry. We can at least take steps in the right direction by taking a more enlightened approach to our current curriculum and go from there. But I think that's a start. That is a great start. Thank you so much for that. Scott, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well and why? A lot. But, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me, which I think really salient in this day and age of leadership, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell and the book Blink in particular, this idea of kind of thin slicing, which is, you know, the ability to use limited amount of information from a relatively short period of time to come to a conclusion, right? Notwithstanding, you know, my previous comments about deliberate strategic planning, as a leader, you don't always necessarily have the luxury, you know, of time, right? And I think, you know, this book and this premise leads to a level of confidence that there is something to be said for the mind's ability to process and to make a valid decision within a short period of time. And I think, you know, for those of us who have served in educational administration for a lot of years, you come to really start to trust your instincts. And so that theory, that concept for me was like very validating And I think it's useful, you know, not just for leaders. I think it's just for anybody that's operating within a fast-paced world that's being bombarded constantly by information and data. There is something to be said for being able to kind of make a valid judgment decision Mm -hmm. with relatively little information and in relatively little time. Well, I love that because time is our most valuable commodity, especially in education where there's so much coming at us and there's so little time to do it. So I appreciate that. Now, Scott, you have a lot of responsibilities. Right. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? For me personally, it's exercising in the morning. You know, and it is about the physical activity, but there's something more to it. And I think that in particular, rising early, um, engaging in something that is of interest to you, that's not associated with your job. I think is really important. And it occurred to me why. It wasn't always this way, Lily. It's only been for like the last couple of years. And I used to listen, I used to be the guy who said, I will never get up early (laughs) and never go to the gym early. And now I'm an avid fan of it. It doesn't have to be the gym, 
but I really enjoy before I've gone to work having a time when I'm doing something that is for me. You know, it's the exercise, but it's also kind of the conversations I have because then when I get to work, you know, I feel like there's already been something in my day for me that I've chosen and that I've voluntarily done. You know, as opposed to the way I did it for a number of years, which was like flying out the door and the first interactions you have during the day, other than maybe with your family on the way out of the house, were professional. And I find myself much more engaged, much more ready to engage in those professional conversations and interactions. Now that in the short period of time I've been up, I've had an opportunity to kind of do me and engage in conversations that have absolutely nothing to do with work. I think whatever that may be, you know, whether it's a walk, you know, with a friend or meditation or whatever the case may be, find time before you get onto the job site to have time for you. And I think it's really liberating to do that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think one of the things that I've gotten much better at and learned as I've gotten older is that I don't know as much as I think I do. <laughs> and that I've really come to appreciate and value perspective. I never cease to be amazed by what I learn by listening to others, you know? And so I I suppose that would be what I would tell the younger me would be like, listen, work on that and develop that skill of active listening because you really accomplish just as much, if not more, through active listening. And whether it's what you learn from active listening or kind of the appreciation that you gain from people when they see you as a person and know you to be a person who listens actively and not just like giving body language and gestures like to give the impression that you actually really are in this day and age i find that more and more people are looking for that somebody who listens somebody who's invested and so that would be you know the advice i would give to the younger me well i appreciate that and you know i decided to do podcasting for two reasons One, I practice listening, and there's so many things to learn about that. And it's a vehicle where other people can practice listening because you can use it anywhere. Driving, you can be exercising, and you can learn so much just by listening to people's stories and their leadership journey. So I appreciate what you've shared today. Now, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? How much time do I have, Lily? Go ahead. You know, I've been on this, um, this idea. I'm inspired. We've never faced more challenges in public ed. And it's creating a lot of organizational stress and anxiety amongst, in particular, teachers, but also students, right? And so, you know, I really feel like leading in public schools and maybe in other sectors as well is this, as a leader, is the importance of creating a calming environment, an environment where People are focused and people are committed to a high standard, but at the same time, we're just easing down and trying to bring down the level of tension and anxiety and stress. Um, And, you know, I really believe in the local community. In New Jersey, we have about 600 school districts. You know, they're very kind of divided up by small townships. And so there's a great promise and potential you know, in the local municipality, as we see sometimes on the state level and the national level, it becomes a bit unwieldy and we can't necessarily find consensus and we can't necessarily find a direction forward. I think in the local community, we have an opportunity to really establish an environment where we're all working and pulling together in the same direction. And I think the future of our country and our society 
rests largely in the ability of the local community to really invest in itself and its people. Kind of similar to how I believe that the backbone of an economy is really the small business. And as small businesses go, so will the larger economy go. And so as a leader, as a person who's working within schools, I feel really inspired to be kind of part of that effort, to be serving that role and that purpose in the local community and strengthening that local community. Well said. Scott, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's my pleasure, Lily. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been great. Have an amazing evening. Likewise. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.